Well, good evening. It's good to see everyone. I know that sometimes on Wednesday night, for many of us, just, just getting here is a minor accomplishment. And so thank the Lord for his protective hand and enablement and the opportunity to gather. What a privilege that really is. It would be good for us to spend a few moments giving attention to the memory passage that our pastor put in front of us at the beginning of this year. So would you turn first of all tonight to Galatians chapter 5 and we'll give some attention to these first two verses. The passage starts in verse 16, Galatians 5:16, and that's a short verse and a familiar verse. It's nice to start that way. But we'll also read and then try to say verse 17, which is a little bit longer. This passage, of course, has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. And it speaks to what one of the most prominent American theologians of the 20th century, B.B. Warfield, called the charter of our salvation. If you were taking a Bible doctrines test and you were asked to fill in the blank, what is the charter of your salvation? What would you put in that blank? Well, what Warfield put in that blank is the battle of the Holy Spirit in our souls against our flesh. Why would he call that the charter of our salvation? Because if there is no spirit battling our flesh in our soul, that means we are no believer. The very fact that there is a battle, everyone has flesh, but the fact that there is a true spiritual battle, battle, capital S spiritual battle going on, is a clear indication that we are saved, that the Lord is at work saving us. That really is a wonderful thought to keep in mind as we work through this passage. So we're going to read verses 16 and 17 together a couple of times, and then we'll try to say it. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. All right, let's say uh, verse 16 just by itself this time. Read again Galatians 5:16. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you can, look away this time. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Good. Now let's read verse 17 one more time. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Let's read that one more time. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Good. Well, that'll get us going. We'll review that again. Take these, uh, take these words to heart. I don't remember what day it was. Um, earlier this week, but Psalm 32 was my assigned One of my assigned readings for my Bible schedule this year, and what a joy it was to just rehearse what we memorized together last year and really let the truth of that wash over my soul. We have that opportunity again this year together. Would you turn back then just uh, three books or so in your New Testament to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4, and we'll, Lord willing, complete a little mini-study that we have been considering in this passage in relation to this theme of God's precious and magnificent promises. And I have a question for us to start off with this evening, and it's a rhetorical question. Please feel no need to respond visibly or audibly. I have a question for us. How many of us like to lose? Do you like to lose? Do you like it when your team loses or when uh, when you... uh, are talking with somebody, you're debating about whether that happened in 1983 or 1984 and you come to realize that person was right? Do you like it when you forget things? Losing isn't isn't natural to most of us. My coaches, my parents tried to teach me to be a good loser as I was growing up. It was never a lesson I really enjoyed trying to learn, although I had plenty of chances to do so. And the reality is, whether you're talking about a competition of some sort or just life in general, we all really like the idea of victory. We like to see victory. We like to be involved in victory. We like it spiritually when we feel victorious. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in February of 1650, the Puritan theologian John Owen preached to Parliament. This was his text, Romans 4.20. And the title of that sermon was The Steadfastness of the Promises and the Sinfulness of Staggering. 
the steadfastness of God's promises and the sinfulness of staggering. And toward the end of the sermon, Owen said this. He was speaking to Parliament. Evidently, he believed that it had direct application to Parliament. But it seems that it has general application to us all. He said, for the most part, we live upon successes, not promises. Unless we see and feel the print of victories, we will not believe. For the most part, he said, we live upon successes, not promises. Unless we see and feel the print of victory, we will not believe. That is our question this evening. Are we living by successes or by God's promises? What really is the firm ground on which we stand? And are we standing there? We've considered this chapter, or just a small portion of it, in its revelation about the nature of saving faith. Saving faith that is the entry point, but also the path, the entire pathway of the Christian life. It is the instrument by which we receive justification by faith alone. That happens at conversion. That happens once. That's not an ongoing work. But the faith by which we receive Christ's righteousness is the faith that we exercise in obedience in God's work of sanctification in our hearts all the way to the point where he brings us home to glory. And we're giving attention to God's dealings with a man that he in Scripture has put before us as a father of the faith. And that, of course, is Abraham. What can we learn, first of all, from God's dealings with Abraham, and then secondly, from Abraham's faithful response? What should we take to heart? How should we be discipled? about a faith, a saving faith that does not stagger. Well, we've noted a few lessons along the way. We'll begin by reviewing a couple of those. One is, it's instructive as we consider the example of Abraham to be reminded that we are not the first believers to face difficulties, even improbabilities what an unbeliever would call an impossibility. We're not the first ones to be here. In fact, this is the experience of all believers through time in various ways. And we considered that question of what we should learn from God's dealings with Abraham and noticed that God in this passage tells us why he made the Christian life this way. Why did God choose faith? And we focused on three answers to that question. God chose faith, first of all, 
to magnify his grace. For this reason, verse 16 says, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. And secondly, not only did God choose faith to magnify his grace, but as verse 16 goes on, he chose it to guarantee his promise to any and all who would believe. It's not restricted simply to those who have advantages in one way or another. It is so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. And thirdly, as it speaks to his amazing perfections, his ability to call to life that which does not exist, to give life to the dead, to call into being what does not exist. God chose faith to show his unique glory. And when we face the challenges, the improbabilities, and we're being tested in our faith, we can have confidence that among what other things God may be doing, he is doing these three things. He is putting us in this situation so that he can magnify his grace. So that his grace is available to us, weak as we are, because it's through the instrument of faith, not through some merit of our own. And it is to show his unique glory. And then we focused last time on Abraham's response. His response is captured in three verbal statements that in verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed. And in verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated. And in verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. He believed in hope against hope. He contemplated, though not in a way that was weakening to his faith. And instead of wavering in unbelief, he grew strong in faith. Before we move on, it would be good for us to notice in that statement in verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. That verb, translated grew strong, is a passive verb. When we have an active verb, then the the subject is doing the action. Abraham believed. That's an active sentence, an active verb. But here, it's passive. It's translated grew strong. But perhaps an even clearer way to to translate this would be that Abraham was strengthened. The point of the verb doesn't seem to be that Abraham's faith was strong, that Abraham was strong. It was that Abraham was strengthened in believing and perhaps through believing. The strength is not coming from Abraham or his faith. The strength is coming from God through the faith, in the believing. And so he's not wavering, but he is being strengthened in faith. 
We talked a little bit last time about this word wavering. Or in the King James Version, the word is translated stagger. Hence Owen's sermon title. Wavering carries the idea of a horns, the horns of a dilemma. You're over here in your considerations and then you, you come over here in your considerations and you, and you go back and forth, you're, you're wavering. And what, what is the dispute, the, the self-consultation, Owen calls it, the, the, the dispute, what, what is the wavering about? What are the, the two horns of the dilemma? Well, on one hand, there is what God has spoken, the promise of God. And on the other hand, there is this reality that Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, and he contemplated his wife in the deadness of her womb. What we contemplate, what we, what we mentally picture, Abraham did consider his circumstances. But he didn't do so with a rationale that weakened his faith. As as someone has put it, we mentioned this last time, he, he, he didn't look through the telescope or through the binoculars from the wrong end. We can use reasoning, we should use reasoning. But that that reasoning has to be looked at through the right lens, which is faith. And so we come to this, this third lesson. Not only are we not the first believers to experience improbabilities, not only did God choose faith for these three reasons, at least three reasons, but thirdly, wavering in spiritual indecision is unbelief. We must call it what it is. We must not pacify it or diminish the significance of it. The text says he did not waver in unbelief. If he had wavered, it would have been unbelief. That's why the King James says staggered. And that staggering is sinful unbelief. And we struggle, we, we struggle with this. Why? Why would we waver? Well, perhaps we waver because of the promiser himself. Perhaps we, we haven't focused on him, his character, his perfections. Or perhaps we waver because of the promise itself. In Abraham's case, he had a promise, but he also had these realities of his body, of his wife, past childbearing age, never having been able to, do, to, to conceive and deliver a child. But perhaps the issue isn't sometimes about God or his promise, but about us. Perhaps we waver because of ourselves, And that is a real danger. If God comes to us with a promise and our response is folded arms, 
Our response is skepticism. Our response is to turn to other dependencies, to be like Israel or Judah that turned to Egypt in the face of oncoming trial and assault by Assyria. That could be a real danger, a stubbornness. But, but often there is, it's not so much a stubbornness or a skepticism. If we know ourselves, it's, it's just a weakness. We're weak people. And that's where our fourth lesson comes in. Because Abraham was weak too. And it would be good if we spent just a couple of minutes thinking about the text in Genesis from which Paul is drawing these words here in Romans 4. Romans 4 says that he did not waver in unbelief and that he was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. But it would be good for the, for the reality of this and the encouragement of this to really settle in for us. It would be good for us to notice what Genesis says. So if you'd hold your place here and turn back to Genesis 15, just for a few moments, we want to retrace familiar steps of Abraham. The call to Abraham And the covenant given to him is first communicated by the Lord in Genesis 12. In Genesis 14, we have the account of, well, Genesis 13 of Abraham and Lot. In Genesis 14, this, this war where Lot is taken and Abraham rescues him. And there's this interaction with Melchizedek. And notice what Genesis 15 then says, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now notice verse six, Genesis 15, six. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. Does that language sound familiar? Abraham receives the righteousness of the Lord, of the promised Messiah, by faith. But notice Genesis 16. Verse 1, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 2, 
You know how that story unfolds. The Lord had told him in Genesis 15 that he was going to have an heir from his own body. So he listened to the voice of his wife and, and pursued a, a pathway of accomplishing that that, of course, was not, was not the Lord's will this, because this was going to be a child of promise, not a child of human decision. And so we come to Genesis 17. And we'll pick up the story in verse 15. 17, 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And, and in case we're a little unclear about Abraham's thought process here and, and what he's what he's communicating, verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Then notice, After God goes up from Abraham, verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Abraham did struggle to believe the promise of God at first. Abraham was weak. When Paul says that he did not waver, that's not to say that Abraham was some sort of Teflon believer. That nothing affected. That believed 100% with, with, with no struggle from the start all the way through. Evidently, what the Holy Spirit through Paul means is that Abraham, once this promise became clear to him, and he shows this by, by, circum, by being circumcised and circumcising Ishmael and all his household, what was circumcision? It was the sign of the covenant, of the promise. This is before, this is well before Isaac is born. Abraham shows his belief and his belief grows and he comes to the point in Genesis 22 where he's even willing to offer as a sacrifice this child of promise, Isaac. God says, I I know that you fear me. You didn't withhold even your one beloved son of promise from me. The encouragement, I think, for us in this passage is that when it talks about Abraham, Growing strong by faith, being strengthened in his faith, 
It, it is a work in progress. It is God working in the life of a weak man, as you and I often are. The Lord, here's how we would put this lesson, the Lord patiently sustains weak followers. He sustained Abraham's faith, and it grew and grew to the point where this is his testimony. He is the father of the faith. But how, how would we know? How would we know that we are being strengthened in faith? Well, if you'll turn back to Romans 4, verses 20 and 21 give us two explanatory evidences of being strengthened in faith. How would we know that we're not just gritting our teeth and, and bearing something, that we're, we're not... We're not just persisting because of human willpower. How would we know that we're actually being strengthened in faith? Well, the text is clear. Look at verse 20 again. He was strengthened in faith. Here's the first explanatory evidence. Giving glory to God. How would we know that we're standing firmly on the promises of God. It's when in the face of circumstances that seem to be to the contrary, we are giving glory to God. We're honoring God as God. Remember that, that ingratitude and rebellion are, are the, the primal sin. That, this is what Romans 1 speaks of to fail to give God glory, to fail to worship Him, to be grateful, to be thankful, is the essence of human rebellion. Abraham's faith is exemplary because it honors God as God. It puts God in the place in his heart that only he deserves, ascribing to him the glory due his name. So here then is the question for us. Can we honor God as God in this circumstance by giving the weight not to the circumstance and our interpretation of it, but to God's words? Are we giving weight to God? Are we giving glory to God? That's one way we would know that our faith is being strengthened and we being strengthened through it. And the second explanatory evidence of this strengthening is in verse 21, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Fully assured that what God had promised he was also fully capable of performing, that no promise can supersede God's ability to accomplish it. God's promise does not exceed his capability to perform it. What, what about this promiser, his integrity, his memory, his immutability, his integrity? We've come to this verse many times in this series, Luke 1.37. Not impossible 
for God is every word. Not impossible for God, with God, is every word. And so we would know that we're being strengthened and we are truly standing when our assurance is full. It's an assurance in God's ability to perform anything and everything that he promises. You could put it this way in terms of a lesson. To walk by faith is to stand not on successes, but on promises. Perhaps that is what we need to take away from this consideration tonight more than anything else. That wherever we are, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, however shaky the ground seems underneath our feet, however uncertain the situation, however weak we feel, as certainly Abraham must have along the way, wherever we are, God's promises are solid ground. The footing is God's promises, no matter the location. And Abraham came to a full assurance of that. It reminds me of a passage at the end of the first part of Pilgrim's Progress that we'll come to later this year, Lord willing. It's one of many beautiful statements in this book. Christian and hopeful are crossing the river. And Christian is, is struggling. He's, he's facing death. And hopeful looks over to him and says, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. The name of that brother was hopeful. What do you hope in? You hope in God's promises. Even in the river of death, the valley of the shadow, the firm ground is not yourself. It's not how capable you think you are. It's not how well you've calculated and prepared the rationale that you've applied to the situation. The firm, the only firm ground are God's words, are his promises. And the crowning confirmation of God's trustworthiness is given to us in this passage. And with this, we'll finish. Remember that back in verse 17, Paul speaks of God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And then fast forward to verse 24, we're told that, that this was written not only for Abraham, but for our sake. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. David wrote in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to Hades. And Peter picks that up in his sermon at Pentecost 
And he explains that that couldn't have referred to David. Not ultimately. It had to refer to his greatest son. And he quotes Psalm 132 that God had sworn to David with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne forever. And so David in Psalm 16 spoke as a prophet about the resurrection of his greater son, Jesus Christ. And now this passage that calls our attention to the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, like, like seed in a barren woman who delivers the son of promise and ultimately the resurrection of one who was slain by our sin and death itself and was raised to victory. There was no way that God's covenant with David could be fulfilled if Jesus Christ had lain permanently in that tomb. Here is irrefutable confirmation that God is trustworthy, that his promises cannot exceed his capabilities to perform them. He raised his son from the dead. And that is the son in whom we believe. God laid ultimate claim to his reliability through the resurrection. And therefore, our faith in this God who raises the dead is the firmest ground that you could stand on. Do you trust God that he raised his son from the dead? Then wherever you are, you can trust his promises, no matter the situation. I was reminded of those words in the hymn, The Solid Rock, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. May we trust God. May we stand firmly on his promises. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for revealing to us your love, your sovereignty, your wisdom and power, and doing so in such a way that enables us to believe and follow you all the way home. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we pray tonight and as we seek to live faithfully this week, that we might do so by standing on your promises, by taking you at your word, by trusting you. And we thank you that you have promised never to leave us or forsake us. And so we pray that you would confirm this word, word to our hearts and you would enable us to use it to your glory as we pray, we ask in Christ's name, amen.